Chapter Seven of the Story of a Whim by Grace Livingston Hill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Like Many Waters. Chapter Seven. I love you. After his supper that night, he doggedly seized the lesson leaflet and began to study. He read the whole thing through, hints and elucidations and illustrations and all, and then began again. At last it struck him that the hints for the infant class would about suit his needs, and without further ado, he set himself to master them. Before long he was as interested as a child in his plans, and the next evening was spent in cutting out paper crosses, as suggested in the lesson, one for every scholar he expected to be present, and lettering them with the golden text. He spent another evening still in making an elaborate picture on the reverse side of the chalkboard, to be used at the close of his lesson after he led up to it by more simple work on the other side. He went so far as to take the hymn book, select the hymns, and write out a regular program. No one should catch him napping this time. Neither should the prayer be forgotten. Uncle Moses would be there, and they could trust him to pray. Christie was a little anxious about his music, for upon that he depended principally for success. He felt surprised over himself that he so much wished to succeed, when a week ago he hadn't cared. What would he do, though, if Mortimer didn't turn up, or worse still, if he'd planned more mischief? But the three friends appeared promptly on the hour, dignity on their faces, and helpfulness in the atmosphere that surrounded them. They had no more practical jokes to play. They had recognized that for some hidden reason Christie meant to play this thing out in earnest and their liking and respect for him were such that they wanted to assist in the same spirit. They liked him none the less for his prompt handling of the case of liquors. They carried a code of honor in that colony that respected moral courage when they saw it. Besides, everybody liked Christie. They listened closely to Christie's lesson, even with interest. They took their little prayer crosses, studied them curiously, and folded them away in their breast pockets. Armstrong had passed them around, being careful to reserve three for himself, Mortimer, and Rushforth, and they sang with a right good will. And when the time came to leave, they shook hands with Christie like the rest, and without the least mocking in their voices, said they had a pleasant time and would come again. Then each man took a box and a board and stowed them away as he passed out of the room. And thus Christie was set up above the rest to a position of honor and respect. This work he had taken up, that they partly forced him to take up, separated him from them somewhat. Perhaps it was this fact that Christie had to thank afterward for his freedom from temptation during those first few weeks of his acquaintance with his heavenly Father. For how could he have grown into the life of Christ if he had constantly met and drunk liquor with these companions? The new life could not have grown with the old. Christie's action that first Sunday afternoon made a difference between him and the rest. They recognized it, admired it in him, and therefore lifted him up. What was there for Christie but to try to act his part? Before the end of another week, a package of books and papers and Sunday school cards and helps arrived from the North, such as would have delighted the heart of the most advanced Sunday school teacher of the day. What those girls could not think of, the head of the large religious bookstore they went to thought of for them, and Christie had food for thought and action during many long lonely evenings. 
and always these evenings ended in his kneeling in the dark, where he imagined the light of Christ's halo in the picture could send its glow upon him, and saying out loud in a clear voice, My father. Outside in the night was heard only the wailings of the tall pines, as they waved weird fingers dripping with gray moss, or the plaintive call of the titlark. With the package, a letter for Christie came too. He put it in his breast pocket with eager anticipation, and hustled that pony home at a most unmerciful trot, at least so thought the pony. When Hazel Winship read that second letter out loud to the other girls, she didn't read all of it. The pages containing the sketches she passed around freely, and they read and laughed over the Sunday school, and talked enthusiastically of its future. But the pages that told of the Sabbath evening vision, and of Christie's feeling toward the picture, Hazel kept to herself. She felt instinctively that Christie would rather not have it shown. It seemed so sacred to her and so wonderful. Her heart went out to the other soul seeking its father. When they left her room that night, she locked the door and knelt a long time praying, praying for the soul of Christie Bailey. Something in the longing of that letter from the South reproached her that she, with all her enlightenment, was not appreciating to its full the love and care of her Heavenly Father. And so Christie unknowingly helped Hazel Winship nearer to her master. And then Hazel wrote the letter, in spite of a Greek thesis, the thesis, in fact, that was waiting and calling to her with urgency, the letter that Christie carried home in his breast pocket. He didn't wait to eat his supper, though he gave the pony his. Indeed, it wasn't a very attractive function at its best. Christie was really handsome that night, with the lamplight bringing out all the copper tints and garnet shadows in his hair. His finely cut lips curved in a pleasant smile of anticipation. He didn't realize before how much he wanted to hear from Hazel Winship again. His heart was thumping as he tore open the delicately perfumed envelope and took out the many closely written pages of the letter. And his heart rejoiced that it was long and closely written. He resolved to read it slowly and make it last a good while. My dear, dear Christie, it began. Your second letter has come, and first, I want to tell you that I love you. Christie gasped and dropped the sheets upon the table, his arms and face on them. His heart was throbbing painfully, and his breath felt like great sobs. When he raised his eyes eventually, as he was acquiring a habit of doing to the picture, they were full of tears. They fell and blurred the delicate writing of the pages on the table, and the Christ knew and pitied him and seemed almost to smile. No one had ever told Christy Bailey of loving him, not since his mother those long years ago held him to her breast and whispered to God to make her little Chris a good man. He grew up without expecting love. He scarcely thought he knew the meaning of the word. He scorned it in the only sense he'd ever heard it spoken of. And now, in all his loneliness, to have this free, sweet love of a pure-hearted girl rushed upon him without stint and without cause overpowered him. Of course he knew it wasn't his, this love she gave so freely and so frankly. It was meant for a person who never existed, a nice, homely old maid, whose throne in Hazel's imagination was located in his cabin for some strange, wonderful reason. Yet it was his, too, his to enjoy, for it certainly belonged to no one else. He was robbing no one else to let his hungry heart be filled a little while with the fullness of it. 
One resolve he made instantly, without hesitation, and that was he would be worthy of such love, if so be it lay in him to be. He would cherish it, as a tender flower that was meant for another, but fell instead into his rough keeping. And no thought or word or action of his should ever stain it. Then, with true knighthood in his heart to help him onward, he raised his head and read on, a great joy upon him that almost engulfed him. And I believe you love me a little too. Christie caught his breath again. He saw it was true, although he hadn't known it before. Shall I tell you why I think so? Because you've written me this little piece out of your heart life, this story of your vision of Jesus Christ, for I believe it was such. I haven't read that part of your letter to the other girls. I couldn't. It seemed sacred. While I know they would have sympathized and understood, I felt perhaps you wrote it just to me, and I would keep it sacred for you. And so I'm sending you this letter just to speak of that to you. I'll write in my other letter with the rest of the girls about the Sunday school and how glad we are, and about the pictures and how fine they are, and you'll understand. But this letter is about your own self. I've stopped most urgent work upon my thesis to write this too, so you may know how important I consider you, Christy. I couldn't sleep last night for praying about you. It was a wonderful revelation to Christy, the longing of another soul that his might be saved. To the lonely young fellow, accustomed to thinking that not another one in the world cared for him, it seemed almost unbelievable. He forgot for the time that she considered him another girl like her. He forgot everything except her pleading that he would give himself to Jesus. She wrote of Jesus Christ as one would write of a much-loved friend, met often face to face, consulted about everything in life, and trusted beyond all others. A few weeks ago this would indeed have been wonderful to the young man, but that it could have any relation to him, impossible. Now, with the remembrance of his dream and the joy his heart had felt from the presence of a picture in his room, it seemed it might be true that Christ would love even him, and with so great a love. The pleading took hold upon him. Jesus was real to this one girl. He might become real to him. The thought of that girlish figure kneeling beside her bed in the solemn night hours praying for him was almost more than he could bear. It filled him with awe and a great joy. He drew his breath and didn't try to keep the tears from flowing. It seemed that the fountains of the years were broken up in him, and he was weeping out his cry for the lonely, unloved childhood he had lost, and the bitter years of mistakes that followed. It appeared that the Bible had a great part to play in this new life put before him. Verses he recognized from Scripture abounded in the letter. He didn't recall hearing them before, but they came to him with a rich sweetness as though spoken just for him. Did the Bible contain all that, and why hadn't he known it before? He went to other books for respite from his loneliness. Why had he never known that there was deeper comfort than all else could give? Think of it, Christy. The letter read, Jesus Christ would have come to this earth and lived and died to save you if you were the only one out of the whole earth that was going to accept him. He turned his longing eyes to the picture. Was that true? And the eyes seemed to answer, Yes, Christy, I would. Before he turned out his light that night, he took the Bible from the organ and opening at random read, For I have loved thee with an everlasting love, therefore with loving kindness I have drawn thee. 
and a light of belief spread over his face. He couldn't sleep for many hours for thinking of it all. There was no question in his mind of whether he would or not. He felt he was the Lord's in spite of everything else. The loving kindness that had drawn him was too great for any human resistance. Then with the realization of the loving kindness came self-reproach for his so long denial and worse than indifference. He didn't understand the meaning of repentance and faith, but he was learning them in his life. Christie was never the same after that night. Something changed in him. It may have been growing all those days since the things first came, but that letter from Hazel Winship marked a decided epoch in his life. All his manhood rose to meet the sweetness of the girl's unasked prayer for him. It didn't matter that she didn't think of him as a man. She prayed, and the prayer reached up to heaven and back to him again. The only touch of sadness about it was that he could never see her and thank her face to face for the good she did for him. He thought of her as some faraway angel who stopped on earth for a little while, and in some of his reveries he dreamed that perhaps in heaven, where all things were made right, he should know her. For the present it was enough that he had her kind friendship and her companionship in writing. Not for worlds now would he reveal his identity, and the thought that this might be wrong did not enter his mind. What harm could it possibly do, and what infinite good to him? and perhaps through him to a few of those little black children, he let this thought come timidly to the front. This was the beginning of the friendship that made life a new thing to Christy Bailey. He wrote long letters, telling the thoughts of his inmost heart, as he had never told them to anyone on earth, as he could never have told them to one he hoped to meet sometime, as he would have told them to God. And the college student found time amid her essays and her activities to answer them promptly. Her companions wondered why she wasted so much valuable time on that poor cracker girl, as they sometimes spoke of Christie, and how she could have patience to write such long letters. But their curiosity didn't go so far as to wonder what she found to say. Otherwise they might have noticed that Hazel offered less often to read out loud her letters from the South, but they were busy and only occasionally inquired about Christie now or sent a message. Hazel herself sometimes wondered why this stranger girl had taken so deep a hold upon her, but the days went by and the letters came frequently, and she never found herself willing to put one by unanswered. Some question always needed answering, some point on which her young convert to Jesus Christ needed enlightenment. Then, too, she found herself growing nearer to Jesus because of this friendship, with one who was just learning to trust him in such a childlike and earnest way. Do you know, she confided to Ruth Summers one day, I can't make myself see Christy Bailey as homely. It doesn't seem possible to me. I think she's mistaken. I know I'll find something handsome about her when I see her, which I shall some day. And Ruth smiled mockingly. Oh, Hazel, Hazel, it will be better then for you never to see poor Christy, I'm sure. For you'll surely find your ideal different from the reality. But Hazel's eyes grew dreamy, and she shook her head. No, Ruth, I'm sure. A girl couldn't have all the beautiful thoughts Christy has and not be fine in expression. There'll be some beauty in her, I'm sure. Her eyes now, I know, are magnificent. I wish she'd send me a picture, but she won't have one taken, though I've coaxed and coaxed. End of chapter 7